Welcome to episode 5 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to crown the best builder of the animal kingdom. So let's continue the conversation. Welcome back everyone to MADE. With me today is Ray Peña. How you doing? And uh, Claudia Berrigan is not here right now, but she will join us later on the show. Uh, my name is Jose Valcarso. How you been, Ray? Oh, pretty good. And yourself? Been doing good. Been doing good. This is, uh, it's been a better week. This is show five. We've made it past a month. I know. I can't believe right. it. Right? It's gone by uh, so fast. Yeah, it's quite the achievement. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if we were going to give up, we would have given up by now. Exactly. Now we're gonna we keep going through this, whether people like it or not. <laughs> we're gonna make them uh, tolerate it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean I, I've been looking at it. We, we're getting more views every time, so I think we gotta keep going with it. People are liking it, and you know, if somebody has some comments or some suggestions, please send us an email. Uh, you'll get all that information at the end of the show. So let's just get right to it then, right? Let's go to the news. first news story that I found here is called Real Scale Drawings. And I don't know if you looked at this, there's quite a few photos, but basically this architecture firm has started on a parking lot. They've started using tape to do full-scale drawings of the, the, their designs. Um, what do you think about this, Ray? I mean, I, I saw it and I, I, there's something that spoke to me about it, <laughs> but uh, what, what do you think? You know, um, uh, it's interesting because I saw this article uh, you posted and I looked at it and it was uh, quite interesting because uh, you know uh, we all have designed many buildings and rooms and uh, when you're sitting in front of a computer or at your desk on, a, on with a piece of paper uh, it kind of reminded me of, of being in school and I don't know if you remember your first few projects uh, you kind of got the scale all wrong because you really didn't understand right. the you know what the size really meant on on paper when you put mm -hmm. it in real life and then you kind of learn and and you know, you, you have a pretty good idea, but what it what it spoke to me is uh, for their clients, mm -hmm. for their clients to be able to experience what they've drawn. I think it is very valuable because our clients haven't had that chance to learn what an actual room will feel like when you see it on right. paper. And I agree. And it's funny you mentioned that because I've ran into clients at, at, in my practice that I would show up with the with the floor plans and elevation drawings. And they would be like, oh, I thought you were going to bring drawings. I'm like, yeah, they're right here. There's drawings. And they meant they wanted to see 3D views. Uh, because uh. to them, looking at a plan, like they could not picture the space. Yeah. You know, and I think this is a way of helping them picture that space. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, another tool in the arsenal to be able to communicate with the client. Right, right, right. Um, the other part of it, I think, is that also spoke to me a little bit is that when you think about it, when we were drawing, whether it was in school or in our in different practices, I know you're not you're not working in architecture right now or anymore, but uh, but when we were when we were drawing in the computer, we were drawing to full size, right? Yes. We were drawing it at the size that it was supposed to be, mm -hmm. but we never really experienced it that way. These guys have taken that level of like, okay, we're going to draw it to the actual size. Um, yeah, I mean, and what they're doing is uh, actually quite time consuming. But right. um, but to work it out, and if the client doesn't like it, 
-hmm. it's a lot cheaper to do it here than elsewhere. Right. You know, in the building itself. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's a, it's a nice novelty that they've come up with. You obviously need the space, right? Because you gotta have a big old parking lot like these guys have. Yeah, that's where they're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if you have the space, it's kind of cool to do. Maybe for your, you know, the other thing is that probably a lot of high-end clients and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I think I think it's a good exercise, and I think if they're you know targeting their their clients or if somebody listening to the show wants to uh, have a good feel for a project that they're planning. Uh, I think it's a pretty good exercise. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. All right, good, 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 good. Next story, uh, it's one that you added. Um, it's called Building Steel Bridges in Sight with 3D Printing Technology. This is pretty cool. I, I saw the videos for it. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, this is a, uh, a company that's been uh, working on the idea. Now, we, you know, we're all familiar with 3D printing now. It's, uh, it's kind of old technology. Uh, you know, 3D printing has been around for... 20, 30 years, uh, but it has uh, recently has gotten a huge push, and probably because all the patents have run out, and now it's kind of an open uh, field, and people are coming out from all different angles on 3D printing. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, what this bridge project is, it's the next step. So right now, 3D printing is confined to a box or to some kind of envelope that you are, are maneuvering an extruder or some other uh, mechanism inside this envelope. Uh, this project, and it's by MX3D, uh, is uh, they've created these robots that actually are freestanding units and can be brought to a site and begin the 3D, the 3D printing or extrusion process, but not with plastic and not with um, powders or any other permutation, but with actual metal. Mm -hmm. And the metal is very simple. It's, it's welding is what they're doing. They're using MIG welding. And mm -hmm. for those who may not be familiar with it, it's, uh, it's basically a metal, a steel wire that has a very special composition. And you can use it to weld pieces of metal together, but you can also use it to uh, bridge gaps and fill voids. And we use it in our shop all the time. When parts are, are undersized, you can weld them up bigger and then machine them back down to the correct size. So they have taken like, like this build it up of sorts, right? You build up exactly, yeah. 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 Because you know some parts are very expensive to make new, and if they if they're just a little bit undersized, you can just uh, build up the surface and then bring it to the correct size, and you have saved the client a tremendous amount of money. So uh, with this welding technology that has been around for decades, uh, you know, decades and decades, uh, mm -hmm. they've married this welding technology to 3D printing and to uh, robotics. To be able to bring this to a site and actually build a bridge from the banks, and their plan mm -hmm. is to build to have two robots, one on each bank, and and uh, build this 3D bridge and meet in the middle, so both robots can be working simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, the project is is scheduled to begin uh, next year, so they're working mm -hmm. on all the kinks, and they have done some beautiful uh, sculptural uh, artwork and and furniture mm -hmm. with this technique. So I'm very excited to see. Uh, what happens and, with this? And strong, right? I see one of the pictures. The guy is like sitting on top of one of these sort of short bridges they build. With yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I'll tell you what that works is uh, the wire that you use for welding in in a typical MIG uh, setting is rated for uh, seventy thousand psi, mm -hmm. whereas the steel that you're welding, if you're just using regular A thirty six, is only thirty six thousand psi. So the wire is typically twice as strong as the material you're welding uh, together. 
Right. So they're using a very good material, and uh, they're figuring out how to uh, make it do exactly what you want in, in, uh, with the computer and robotics. And it's actually very uh, a very beautiful thing. And maybe mm -hmm. in our life in our lifetime, we can see uh, self building buildings. Yeah, no, watching them work is quite. I mean, clearly it's sped up a little bit the the video, but watching them work is quite beautiful. It's almost like artistic just watching the machines. Yes. Hit and points, hit points, hit points, exactly. and build it up. And yeah. and one guy, the the guy who is keeping an eye on the machine, keeping it full of materials, making sure there's no hiccups. One person can do the job of ten. Right. Quite impressive. Yeah, I that was yeah, it's very impressive. I encourage everybody to watch the the videos that are we. Well, there's going to be a link to both the story and to their Facebook page, um, on there, which is it's just a lot of cool work that they got going on. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Nice. So, so the next story is one that eat, that really irks me when I read it, but it's called uh, Rachel Ray is now a furniture designer, mm -hmm. and uh, like I'm, I I got to do everything to not explode when I see <laughs> <laughs> when I see this because I mean I'm sure everybody knows Rachel Ray is sort of the the Food Network star, um, or I don't even think she's a chef; she's a cook, if you ask me. Uh -huh. um, but now she has her own show, and she's got. I saw on on, the, on TV the other day a commercial. She even has dog food now that she's selling. Huh. Um, and this is the woman that started from doing a travel network show about going to other cities and spending only like twenty dollars a day or something. Yes. And um, so she's not qualified to be a furniture designer. Well, you know, I think when she started, she actually started in a little uh, supermarket, like making like samples at a supermarket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what? And I'm sh I'm sure she comes from some humble beginnings and everything, and yeah. good for her to to make it out of that and build this. Like I hate to call it an empire, it's the empire that she's built. Yeah. But, but come on, like, yeah. stick to what you do. You're not a, you're not a furniture designer. Yeah, you know what this kind of reminds me of? Uh, mm -hmm. What's his name? Michael Graves. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Target. Right. <laughs> the Michael Graves products at, at Target. I don't mm -hmm. know if you ever had the displeasure of using any of his products. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never did. I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Michael Graves' architecture and uh -huh. not of his <laughs> products either. Yeah. Uh, you know, rest in peace for the, the guy. But, <laughs> but. Yeah, well, you know, not speaking to the architecture uh, right. because he had some very interesting uh, ideas, maybe not for me, but they were interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, clearly, he did not design any of those products, and they were just absolutely terrible. And I think this is one of those things. It's uh, it's all just marketing. She's got a famous name. They're trying to tap into uh, her audience, which is probably, uh, you know, I don't want to sound sexist, but it's probably a mostly female audience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I personally have never seen one of her shows, and I really wouldn't be interested. But uh, they're trying to tap into that audience, and what better way to do it than to put her name on it? And I doubt that she even knows how to begin to design furniture. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a little, honestly, a little bit insulting to people who actually, uh, and and not just uh, uh, you know people as in designers, but women in particular who have worked very hard at designing and and learning design and designing furniture in mm -hmm. particular. It's a little bit of an insult. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I've worked with with people that are furniture designers, and it's quite the process to do this. They don't just like go out and and like, oh, I'm going to do a sketch, and that's the chair. No, yeah. like it's it's a trying, building, scrapping, doing it again process. That she, you know, on in this article it says that the spokesperson says she sketched some of the furniture herself. 
So she really, like, when the article uh -huh. says that, it's like she clearly has very little to do with this. And, you know, and I don't want to come off as some kind of Rachel Ray hater, even though I am. Because um, I didn't start that way. Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. a whole story as to where I might my hateful Rachel Ray came from mm -hmm. but this just sort of adds to it yeah yeah I don't feel one way or the other about Rachel Ray um, I'm sure she's she's a fine person and all that but yeah, I, I doubt it you doubt but it go ahead <laughs> continue but uh, yeah I, I just think that this is just an, an insult to the profession of designing right. and furniture designing and because it is hard work and, and as you know I've made quite a bit of, uh, of furniture mm -hmm. and uh, I slaved over every bit of furniture mm -hmm. uh you know, designing and, and redesigning, and every single piece of furniture was an evolution. Right. Uh, and uh, so I agree with you that little quote that uh, she sketched some of the furnishings herself. Probably they forced her to sit in a chair and sketch something just so they could be mm -hmm. able to say that. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the worst part was that there's just no need. You know, like she's clearly been very successful in what she's doing with a cooking show and a talk show and a magazine, I believe, as well. Just stick to that stuff. You yeah. know, like you're you're doing well there. Why do you have to come pretend to be something you're not and sort of take away from take really taking credit for the work others are doing? Yeah. So. And not only that, but but now that she's got um, this furniture line, what's going to happen is it muscles in to that uh, crowded market that uh, mm -hmm. somebody just starting out might have a hard time getting into. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, all right, well, I think we've given Rachel Ray more time than, than she, she deserves. deserves. <laughs> so we're going to move on to, and Claudia's going to join us for the next section as we move on to our main topic. Excellent. All right, now joining us for the main topic is Claudia, who we didn't get a chance to say hi earlier. Hello, how are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. Just getting onto the show here. We're going to get into the main topic. You come prepared for the main topic? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm pretty good. All yeah. right. So, as everybody knows, we're going to be talking about a slightly unusual subject today. We're going to talk about um, the best animal builder. So, we've all sort of gathered up our lists of different builders. Who wants to go first? Who wants to throw it? So, the, the plan is we're, we're going to just sort of, each of us can throw it an animal and we can discuss it briefly and go through and then let's try and see if we can come to a consensus as to who the best animal builder or architect or whatever we want to call it is. Who wants to go first? You want to go first, Claudia? Sure. Um, well, even before just picking up a, 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 an animal, like one of the reasons why I really like this particular topic is the fact that um, thinking a lot about like how what's the difference between animal builders and human builders mm -hmm. and architects te technically right and um so looking at how animals make themselves at home in this world and coming looking at this from the environmental perspective um i've i read um he's like one of my anthropology classes that i took in graduate school there was this really cool um description about the contrast between what human beings do and how animals do Mm -hmm. in order to create their environment and the differences between them. So I, that's basically my perspective on, on this, on how we're animals as well, humans, mm -hmm. but we have a complete different way of building or seeing how why we even build. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Oh, and just to make that clear, we have said that we're taking people out of this competition, right? They're just the animals. Humans are out. 
We could, we could go apes if you want, but <laughs> humans are out of <laughs> Yeah, so uh, and from that perspective, so beavers. So mm -hmm. um, that was my first one, beavers. Um, and I recently went to do a river cleanup. And I was scavenging along the Potomac River and just you you know, scavenging. I literally you were I was scavenging. Trash, I was picking up trash. Yeah, but you know, like it's tiny little pieces of yeah. to be used like, for some other purpose. Exactly. And styrofoam. I'm mm, no longer yeah. using styrofoam because that that was everywhere. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I was doing, I was one of myself too. I was like mm -hmm. missing you for a little bit of a day. And um, mm -hmm. one of the things that I was putting is I was sticking my hand everywhere, like in all of the little structures that, you know, the, the beavers make, like, you know, and basically like these little lodges that they create along the river's edge. And um, that does not was, sound like a good idea. It, and that's the thing, like, you know, my, my small little fingers would get mm -hmm. in there and I was like, oh, sure, no problem. And then I thought about it. I'm like, what am I doing? But, you know, what I would find inside there were like plastic pieces, straws, oh, glass. That the beavers were dragging in. That they were dragging uh -huh. in. And um, so it was really interesting. And then just being able to stand on top of these things, too. Mm -hmm. That was like how structurally sound these um, lodges were, are. And um, the average beaver dam, for example, is about six feet high and that's pretty pretty big no I mean, they're quite they're, I, i've seen a couple and they're right? quite astonishing structures yeah. that you think yeah. animals make. They're, they're impressive no doubt yeah so i was really i was really surprised about that and you know like the fact that i i, I could stand on top of these things so yeah that was one that's of a my, testament um, to strength if i've ever heard one exactly <laughs> <laughs> so their construction ability i was completely impressed well i mean i think and the other part of the beavers too, is that a lot of them cut their own trees down right yeah, they drag some trees or whatever, but they're doing some of the harvesting of the material themselves. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny you said beaver because uh, that was on my list as well. Uh, not only are they building their own lodges and their dams, but if a, if a piece of wood or tree is too big for them to carry, no problem. They'll just build a canal and they float the tree down to wherever mm -hmm. they need it. They're, uh, they are quite impressive. And when you think about those dams, you said six feet tall. That is a tremendous amount of water to hold back. Uh, mm -hmm. And as much pressure as it provides, so I I'm agree in, in agreement. They're quite impressive animals. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying they're probably the most well-known builder, right? Yes, especially in North America. Yeah. 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 All right. So I think solid contender. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. You got one, right? Uh, I do. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, the next one on my list was the weaver birds. Now, mm -hmm. uh, birds. You know, everybody knows birds make nests. And and some birds actually make better nests than others. Um, uh, but the weaver birds in particular are very, um, I guess, famous for making intricately woven and elaborate nests. Mm -hmm. uh, and the males in particular like to weave them, and they use that as a display of their prowess in order to attract uh, females. So uh, not only is it a, a uh, useful item as far as providing shelter for their for their young, but it is also a mating signal. And uh, I guess the, the, I'm not sure what qualifies as the most beautiful nest, but, uh, <laughs> but it's quite impressive that they, uh, they can weave these things and, and they do it so quickly, you know, mm -hmm. whatever they find in their environment. Um, so I, that's what uh, my vote is for, for the uh, weaver birds because, because they can do, and remember, they don't have any hands, they're just using their beaks. Yeah. Yeah, and you know when I was doing research, I saw them on. I, I they were also on my list, and I saw them on. They're like enormous nests. Like we're not talking oh, about yeah. little nests. They're like they can fit like up to four hundred birds in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Quite impressive. And predominantly in Africa, right? I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, was it Africa or Australia? I don't uh, remember. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, yeah. tropical Asia. Yeah. And there's yeah, you know yeah. there's a few that are outside of that, but for the most part. Yeah, and I like the idea of communal nests, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, like, uh, or also like hotels, you know, like to to bring in your specific <laughs> hotels. <Yeah. laughs> so it's kind of yeah. cute. Very, very cute. <laughs> yeah, but now you got 400 other birds in there. Well, and then, you know, hey, that's the, you know, it's there. part of the family, right? You, <laughs> is that you're, you're saying, all in the they're family. doing bird orgies, is that what's happening? <laughs> You know, uh, somebody else might just say colony. But that yeah. would be yes, exactly there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. No, I like I, I do like that because they, they like you said they don't have hands. They have to do everything by carrying the carrying them with their beaks. You know. Yeah. And flying. So. Yeah. All right. That's a good one. I like that. All right. So my first one is so I I think termites. Or what, they're the small one, right? So termites not only demolish, right? They they're the, they they do them they do demolition, Demo. right? But certain termites, specifically the cathedral termite, built basically skyscrapers, mm-hmm. right? They build a humongous nest thing that is mounds that can be like up to fifteen feet tall, right? And then not only the the is the, the the mound fifteen feet tall. But they have like the underground part of it can spread like acres around that mound, right? So skyscrapers, humongous underground basement, if you will. And I read that like they, the the mound itself can collect moisture, which they use to grow wow. like underground fungi gardens that then they feed the <laughs> the rest of the termites with. So like it's a complex thing that's going on here. Vertically. Right, yeah. vertically yeah. building that's this so cool. this tower for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was quite impressive. And it's funny you should say that because they were on my list as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out there's like three thousand species of termites. <laughs> there's quite yeah. a, quite an yeah. enormous amount. But the mound builders, uh, in particular, in Africa and Australia, and I think there's there might be some in uh, South America. Um, they were uh, on my list as well, uh, and what I liked about them is that they are basically building uh, cities, and some of the mm-hmm. really big ones can have you know millions of of members. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as being the um, the equivalent of of you know when we compare builders and we compare to humans, building the human city something similar, I think they come the closest to that kind of complexity. Mm-hmm. And density too, right? Yeah. And, and, and density, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that's that's one of my. Uh, so, what's interesting though is that that is a colony, so it takes millions of members to do it, whereas some of the other builders are doing it by themselves. So, it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of the other side of that coin. Yeah, that's a fair mm-hmm. point, but I mean the organization itself, the, the organizing this many creatures to build one thing is also an astonishing thing if you think about it. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Huh? Alright, who's, who's got another so one, Claudia? You got another one. I have one? another one because I just insects for me are just not the greatest. <laughs> very. Yeah, I got some bad news for you. Not want to do that. Yes, but I chose the papers on uh, wasps. No. Uh huh. And uh, I thought those were interesting because of the fact that they uh, basically make they use paper, right, mm-hmm. um, to make their dwellings, and um, they again it's the environmental part of it, right? So they make. Um, 
paper out of wood and plant fibers and then they chew it up and then they spit it out mm. <laughs> to make this soft pulp and then they make um, a nest and the cool thing about it is is that it's the as it hardens as is like pulp hardens it becomes a um it's water resistant which is interesting too because it's like <coughs> technically paper uh, but the design is in a hexagonal mm-hmm. shape and then they're all interconnected so they just start spreading and mm. you see them in your windowsills you yeah, see yeah. them you know along like some and walls and stuff like that and eaves mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool and the, the fact that they do that and and again it's the same thing with a colony so it's more of a like site planners in mm-hmm. a way like mm-hmm. you know combining these different uh, cells to create and expand mm. well, that's a complex shape too when mm-hmm. you think about it mm-hmm but it's interesting about that shape is that a lot of insects have kind of discovered that shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because bees make a similar shape, mm-hmm, right? Yep. The, the, this, uh, the, the cell. The hexagonal mm-hmm. cells. Yep. The hexagonal mm-hmm. cells, yeah. That's an interesting one. They also can get quite large too, right? The, their wasp. The nests, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. yes. Did you find anything on, on, your, or on the big size of nests? I, I did not because I didn't want to look at <laughs> pictures of wasps. <laughs> I am really and the larvae <laughs> crawling around. Yes, yeah. I mean the colors and you know the the difference in colors. The diversity, too. yeah. Yeah, that's really cool as well. But yeah, I did not want to. I mean, what I did find is that you know a mature nest can contain up to two hundred cells mm. of these you know the hex- hexagonal cells. So that that's pretty big. It's pretty big, yeah. Yeah. And and um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the cells are basically for nurseries, right? They, for the larvae. Yes, they are. So yeah, that's uh, that's nice when you consider what it, what it's making. It's taking a material and modifying a material because some of the other animals are all just dealing with the materials they can find as is, but that particular one is taking a fi- a, a plant material, transforming it into fibers mixing it with saliva and actually transforming that material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah see, and I like the wasp as well, because I read, as I was doing research, I also read that some people believe that what, looking at wasps make their nest is what inspired the Chinese to create paper, like ah. oh, however many years ago, right? Yeah. Think about it, it's similar process, and you oh, learn yeah. from animals, right? So they maybe even taught us how to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. At a different mm-hmm. scale, that's yeah, really yeah. cool, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, that actually, uh, so far, uh, uh, <laughs> we've kind of overlapped a bit in, in this case as well. However, uh, my wasp is the, uh, the mud dauber. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I find this one particularly interesting because uh, here where I'm living in, in Delaware, in the summertime, they are all over the place. And um, uh, last summer, I happened to be outside uh, by, uh, we're, you know, we're putting up a new building. And, mm-hmm. I, and I was out there in by the ditch and I saw several of them coming down and uh, I saw them collecting mud from the edge of the ditch and uh, I so I watched them for a little while and what was interesting about the mud daubers is that uh, and when our soil here is kind of clay and kind of sandy uh, they are actually quite picky I saw them go from one side of the bank to another side of the, they would visit about a dozen different places until they found the mud that was just right and I don't know if they were feeling for moisture or what, what the criteria was, but uh, when, uh, when I saw them collecting, 
they would all kind of go to that same area. They would all test different areas and pick this one particular uh, mud that had a, a slightly different color. I don't know what was so special about it. So, um, you hmm. know, before I used to think, oh, they're just grabbing mud, but no, they are quite picky on which mud they're going to use. Um, and then uh, what they do is they use their mandibles and, and start uh, pulling it together into a ball. Uh, hmm. And they would fly away with this ball of mud, but and they made it a perfect little ball. It wasn't just a... Hmm. Uh, they didn't grab a chunk and, and do anything. They would mold it, kind of like kneading the clay. Uh, and I guess they were at the same time testing what the consistency was, and that's what made their choice. But uh, they're particularly interesting because, uh, you know, humans uh, had that same level of technology with, you know, wattle and daub construction and even adobe construction. So mm. it's like mm. kind of interesting when you said the paper wasp and Chinese paper making. Uh, it, it, it kind of makes me ask the question, did, you know, at one time did we watch uh, these little insects manipulating dirt and clay to figure out that we could use that material ourselves? Yeah, no, it's actually very interesting. I had, hadn't heard of wasps doing yeah. that. Or we just go with our instinct, right? right. You know, that the same animal instinct that they had, we had as well. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we should, we should do something with this. And use well, animal. you know what? That's very interesting. Uh, what you're saying is that there's an innate quality that we share with other animals uh, to <laughs> manipulate the environment. I like that. That means we're all connected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And, I mean, I guess there's other animals that do that. The dung beetle uses like poop to do something similar, right? To build yep. nests and stuff. They water it up into a ball as well. Mm -hmm. hmm. You see, and I, I wasn't sure about the dung beetle if it was actually using it as a food source or as a building material. Yeah, I'm not oh. quite sure either. I know I've seen I've seen it on TV quite a, quite a bit. You know, making its balls, and they they mostly show it that way. I've never done the research to see what it's doing with it. So the other one I have is um is a gopher. Mm -hmm. And specifically the gopher towns, because so you know we're thinking about builders, but the fact that they build like huge, long, uh, tunneled structures underground, mm, right? Underground. Okay. And that they're all interconnected, and that um, it's basically like their their dwelling area, right? Mm. And they one of the things that I was reading about them is that they. Um, create specific areas underground like so they have their sleeping quarters they have their public areas where they hang huh. out they have their um security areas they actually have a um talk about resiliency um one of the things that they also have is they have ventilated um chambers so that they can uh adapt to the climate and they regu regulate their temperature yeah, so they regulate the weather inside yeah so yeah. and see if you know if there's water penetrating so they can figure that out as well mm -hmm. um the other thing that they have is they have levees outside of the yeah. the, the holes mm -hmm. to keep them from to flooding keep, <laughs> to keep them from, from flooding yeah, that's so interesting. They, that is interesting i mean it's a complete mm -hmm. town structure and and mm -hmm. it's all built a, uh, around climate resilience which is really interesting wow. to me. Like, and they've been doing this all along. The other thing that they do is it's not just for um, for gophers, but it's also for other uh, rodents hmm. too. So amongst themselves, you know, the different cousins or <laughs> within of, of gopher type mm -hmm. animals, they are also welcome in into the different... Oh, so they allow other type of gophers. Yes, or hmm. smaller animals. Because one of the things that, you know, they'll do is to... Um, 
to protect themselves from um, um, predators too, mm-hmm. right? So you can go in there and hide away. So that's one of the one of the advantages. And they also have at some point like even watchtowers with the dirt that they remove. Mm-hmm. So they'll they don't just you know like take it out and just leave it outside. They actually m- make them into little mounds mm-hmm. and they use them as as little towers. And they'll almost like they've I guess scientists have been looking at them. You know they just checking what they do all day long and they will go out and take turns to sort of like keep to watch patrol. <laughs> <laughs> to patrol wow that's interesting that's very complex social structure they got going it is as well as yeah and it's uh, the division of labor they're all taking turns yeah. yes I think some yes. of the other burrowing animals do the same thing like do the uh, prairie, prairie dogs do something similar prairie dogs yeah I wonder or chipmunks or something yeah, yeah. huh that's a very interesting one. Yeah, down here we have uh, groundhogs, which are quite uh, big, but I don't know anything uh, about how they uh, they make their nests. Mm-hmm. But they're huge. They're I mean, uh, I almost hit one on my motorcycle the other day, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was running across the road. I'm like, holy crap, that thing is huge! Oh my god! And they live underground. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Okay, yeah. that's that's a Aww. good one. I like that one. Yeah. So to me, like go for like, go for towns mm-hmm. are the best. Hmm. What about you, Ray? You got another one? Yeah, I've got one more. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, and, and it's probably not so glamorous, mm-hmm. but uh, the mole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the mole is one of those animals that uh, I'm familiar with because we have them here, and they're uh, they're about a they're a nuisance animal, uh, really, because uh, for us as humans. But uh, I can admire what they do. And and you know they they make their homes and and very 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 long highways underground, and uh, my yard here gets crisscrossed uh, all over the place. And the the way I know that they're that they're doing their work is mm-hmm. because they really move the the dirt around. And when you're walking across the yard, you walk on these soft spots. And if I start following them, you know one trail can go from the front yard all the way to the backyard. Wow. Uh, and they go around all these obstacles, and it's quite impressive. And then, of course, they intersect with other trails. And um, I have never found any other uh, any other dens because they also make chambers. But I have seen enough of their um, the evidence of their uh, traversing my yard to become quite annoyed with it. However, what what I find interesting is that what they have done uh, in, in inadvertently, they're you know they're not worried about uh, what the secondary effect is, they're only worried about getting from point A and point B and finding food sources and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But uh, they're loosening up the dirt and aerating it. And what mm-hmm. happens is the, mm-hmm. the grass is actually, when it grows in, it's very nice and lush. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, letting them do their activity, uh, because we don't interfere with their activity. We have a very mm-hmm. natural yard, let them mm-hmm. do whatever they want. Uh, but letting them do what they want to do actually kind of helps me out inadvertently. They also eat all these insects that are, that could be uh, detrimental to the yard. So uh, while they're, uh, you know, I find it annoying that they're burrowing and messing up my mm-hmm. yard. On the other hand, they're actually eating all these uh, grubs and insects that would otherwise damage it. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that they're making all these uh, underground highways. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, interesting and annoying it's both it's both <laughs> things <laughs> huh, interesting okay 
Uh, and it's funny because I, I don't often think about how the animals doing their thing helps us with, you know, like you're saying, they're basically aerating your your yard. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you don't, just don't think about that. Or transporting, right? Yeah. I mean, how what what's their route to transit, mm -hmm. right? Because you know we're we're often in the in, on their in their way, mm -hmm. and hmm. yeah, if we if they were just out in the open, it would more nature around them, and mm -hmm. we'd be able to see their transit systems interesting, cool. interesting. yeah because cool. they uh, that's interesting because their their transit system is visible to me uh, on the surface mm -hmm. but uh, it, it, so it raises the ground up slightly yes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. when you think about it the ground is actually quite hard it's, uh, yeah. so it's interesting that they have enough strength to make their tunnel and then they, they push the ground up a little bit and mm -hmm. so when you walk across there uh, you end up pushing it back down and it's very very soft and um mm -hmm. And if you've ever had hard dirt in, in a heavy rain, you know that hard dirt would actually shed water. But because they've crisscrossed my yard when it rains, it actually just get the water just gets pulled right into the ground. It's very, mm -hmm. it, it's one of these secondary effects that have been beneficial, although their activity is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's less than desirable. They're, and they adapt themselves to, yeah. Yeah. to their environment too. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and so that's why it's an eye-opening experience because when you think about all the, like bees, mm -hmm. you know, we, we benefit from, from the activity of bees and other insects yeah. as pollinators. So, so it's quite interesting. These, their building of architecture actually benefits me directly. Yeah. Nice, okay, cool. cool. Good, good, that's a good one. All right, I got one, well, I got two more, but let's go. So we haven't mentioned, uh, we're going to go back to insects again. <laughs> haven't mentioned spiders. Right? Uh -huh, yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> spiders, they, they are building they're up in the air. They, they, you know, they're, they're, so there's two things, right? They build their web, mm -hmm. right? Which helps them catch insects. And they're quite beautiful, quite intricate, very strong. Right? But there are certain spiders that actually, there's a spider called the leaf curling spider that actually grits a leaf and puts it in its in its web and uses the silk to line it and curl it into like a little home and it can go inside it so it, ah. has, it makes like a little room in its in its in its web that it can go in and, and, and hide if it needs to that is interesting I've never heard of that yeah no, I thought that one was very cool so I was doing research I was like wow I never heard of a spider doing that so huh? yeah so grabbing other yeah again it's using other materials yeah, yeah. and tying it up uh, using part of its natural uh, webbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. you know, I know caterpillars will do that, but I've never, I've never mm. heard of uh, spiders yeah, doing that. Yeah, this is. Well, I mean, you know, in Australia, every and just like Florida, in Australia, every animal's trying to kill you. So they have, <laughs> they have animals that are trying to do, <laughs> trying to do the same thing over there. So. Yeah, I because I'm so short, I usually don't encounter yeah, spider webs, so I'm really happy about that. The fact that they do it really high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> No, I'm so constantly really going through. There's nothing worse than like walking right through a spider web and take it all over your face. Yeah. But then you stop and you're like, you know, that's that's kind of admirable. They've got a really nice material. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, you don't. You don't do that. No, I don't do that. <laughs> no. Well, you know no, what? Now that now that you brought up the spider, it makes uh, uh, it's interesting that you know that uh, leaf curl. I've never heard of that, but uh, I think that a lot of spiders. I know a lot of them do. I don't know if all of them do it. Uh, but I think for the conservation of energy, they probably all do that. All spiders that spin webs, uh, they only put it up for one day. And mm -hmm. then they have to recycle it. They actually consume their own web and spin another one. So 
uh, as far as uh, uh, as that building uh, effort goes, they, they not only build, but they also re end up recycling and reusing a lot of that material because making silk is expensive, you know, mm -hmm. uh, um, biologically. So it's yeah. interesting they could just swallow it and, and reuse it to make more silk. Hmm. That's really interesting. Cool. All right. So, anybody got another one? No, you're all no, right. I'm not. All right. So, the last one I have is not because it's a great, like, impressive structure that it built, but it's supposed to be quite beautiful, and it's the the Namibian. <laughs> man, that's a hard word to say. It is. Na Namibian baya weavers, and they just make nests. But what they do is they take grass that's still fresh, and they weave it all together. And as it dry, it hardens, right? And they're, they're just quite beautiful nests. They're not impressive, it's just for one of them, but they're supposed to be just gorgeous, almost like lantern-looking nests. Now, what do you say is called uh, the Namibian what? The Namibian, Namibian, <laughs> Baya, B-A-Y-A, weavers. That's the name of the bird. Mm-hmm. Huh. But they only make it for themselves. They for only one, make it for, for themselves. So yeah, it's a small nest. It's not like the, the the weavers that we were talking about earlier, where it's this massive nest. It's a smaller nest, but it's it's quite beautiful looking. It's like this gorgeous looking hand weaved thing. And as you see it, because it uses different grasses, so some of them are still green, some of them are turning gray. As it's drying, it changes color even. You know. Hmm. I mean, that's like one of the memories that I have as a kid, um, and I think that that. To a degree that probably encouraged me to look at houses in a different way when I was little is you know like being protective of nests when mm -hmm. you find them as a kid and you know seeing them and uh, and we you know first it was like the discovery is there is there is there a baby bird, bird in there yeah. and then when there isn't one it's like oh but it's so cute maybe you know the mom is gonna come back and all those mm -hmm. other things but as like as kids you know like you just start developing the fact that there are those are houses as well, yeah, yeah. and then you you connect the dots mm -hmm. from that point of view. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it's nice. That's a nice thought. I mean, I think every everything, all three of us have an architectural background, so something has drawn us all in. It's a very that's a very cool, cool yeah. what has drawn you in. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you know what's interesting is we, you know we're talking about all these structures, um, and obviously it's uh, they're shelters primarily, but it seems to me that that a lot of these structures are tied together with uh, reproduction and mm -hmm. what's funny is that if these animals uh, didn't need to reproduce would they still build the same structures uh, you know keeping uh, of course that doesn't apply for all of them but when you think of a bird a bird makes a nest and it lays eggs and it nurtures those those young but do they continue to live in the nest uh, you know some birds only nest to reproduce and then they're not nesting anymore uh, when you think about the uh, the weaving, the colony weavers, that kind mm -hmm. of an, is an exception to the rule, but it's kind of an interesting, uh, just a thought that how reproduction is tied together with, with uh, building, like for example, the wasps, you know, they're putting their larva in, the, in all those cells and that's why they're building the structure in the first place. So it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. how it's tied together to the next generation and that's a fair point. I guess the, the one that doesn't necessarily do it for that reason, I guess the beaver is doing it more for protection, right? The beaver makes a dam yes. in order to yep. sort of give itself some kind of protective barrier from predators. But I think it also uses so it to raise its young while it's doing it. 
Yeah. Yes, and it also as. But as it may not be the primary function. Yeah, and also as a function of the environmental need mm. too, that mm. they that they see in in that in nature mm. as a whole, like the the river flow, you know, and their their contribution to that. To that, right? Um, mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's the whole. Well, you know, when I was reading this this article back in my anthropology class, it was really interesting because that it was this um, writer Tim Ingold who was writing about the built environment and how we look at how we humans look at building in a way of that we're constantly con building but we're building things on nature we're mm. not necessarily building with nature right. um, and also the fact that if you look at the beaver or if you look at any of the animals that we talked about specifically like you know especially like Ray's point with the spider mm -hmm. the fact that they're continually constructing they're mm -hmm. continually building and even like undoing their own their own mm -hmm. work and then rebuilding again um, but it's it's a constant movement um, as opposed to what we do <laughs> and yeah. how we we treat our built environment mm -hmm. um, you know market-based development uh, trying to get more money out of things, mm -hmm. you know, profit-driven. Right. It's just there's yeah. a total different driver. Right. Our our building or our our home buying or our home building has become more about an investment than it has become about nesting or, you know, living in it as much mm -hmm. as it's mostly think it's an investment mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. Or in climate resiliency, for example. Right. You know, a lot yeah. of the buildings that I see, like whenever I see them next to water features you know they're like oh yes yeah, the next water you know you'll have great views of the water and everything mm -hmm. else and i'm like yeah but that's really not good for for mm -hmm. resiliency as a yeah. whole you have levees around there is this yeah. well and not only that but uh even even just a step back from all that is that once you put a building on let's say a riverfront you are denying that riverfront to everyone else right and and really we should all have equal access to all those beautiful uh, areas mm -hmm. Yes. But that, that kind of drifts away from the whole thing. Uh, but what I think your point is is how we've become disconnected with the natural environment when we are discussing all these animals and how well connected they are. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the point. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, right, it's so funny that none of us, I'm okay. sorry. No, no, go ahead. None of us uh, brought up the woodpecker um, because, <laughs> you know, I think it's pretty obvious uh, uh, the woodpecker. And if you've ever lived in an area mm -hmm. with, where they are, they can be quite annoying. And mm -hmm. uh, in Florida, they com often confuse the aluminum light poles uh, for trees. And man, yes. does that make a sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that. And I, so I took a bird class, like just to, it was a, to help rehabilitate birds. And one of the one of the things is like where their brain sits in their head, mm -hmm. because that would really give me mm -hmm. a migraine, right? <laughs> just a mild yeah. migraine, no, a huge migraine. But it sits way in the back, so yeah. like the fact it's that they can do that right? is completely it's protected. Yeah. It's amazing, just even their internal organs. Yeah. Hmm. Well, they've adapted. That's that's a good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so we've all named some animals. So now let's start to start trying to narrow this down. Who do we think here? Who, if you all had to choose one, who who are you choosing as the best one of them all? Hmm. Oh, well, I think they're all good candidates. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think absolutely they're all good candidates, but we, we, we said we're going to come up with the best one. 
So either we've got to come up with one together, or we each have to pick one. Uh-huh. At the very least, we each have to pick one. If we can't, if we can't come to a consensus, we at least each have to have a favorite. Yeah. Well, it's interesting is that I don't, this is a no particular criteria kind of uh, right. yeah. decision. Yeah. 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 This is all about gut feel and who, what, what kind of case we've all made. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, for my personal vote, I think I would go with the with the mound building termites because while there's a lot of animals that are building underground and a lot that are building above ground, they're actually doing both and doing it in a complex social environment. Uh, mm-hmm. They have learned to work together because those mounds are built over generations of uh, of individual members for the good of the colony. Uh, so I think their level of organization and social structure uh, and the the physical structure itself towering above the ground and extending beneath it with complication, complicated venting and, and uh, water retention. Uh, my, I think for level of complexity and ingenuity and, and engineering, I think when you think of those criteria, uh, I think that, uh, that they're probably going to gonna be, for me, on, on top. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Lori? Well, I mean, a lot of those reasons also apply for the gopher towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I do, you know, I'm, a, I'm an urban planner. I'm So mm-hmm. I'm an urbanist. <laughs> so I'm definitely going for the height and the density, the fact that they can actually do that, even though I don't like termites at all. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, by yeah, the way, I mean, little... They, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, a little fact, uh, and, and I didn't know this until I, I researched it myself. Termites are actually related to cockroaches. Mm, oh. That may be even worse. <laughs> <laughs> they are actually related, yeah. Oh, that's even worse, you see. That's but, worse. Uh, yeah, you know, and then, like, of course, they're going to make buildings, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to make high rises. <laughs> Where else would a roach wheel come from? Where else would it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But, yeah, I agree with you, right? I mean, that, especially the resiliency. I think that's, to me, the most interesting thing. And, you know, when we think of climate change and how animals adapt to that i think it's pretty cool mm-hmm. yeah no, i gotta agree i think uh, while all the animals we've seen have impressive things they're doing i think this termite somehow are bringing a lot of this stuff together you know the social part of it the massive structure the underground part of it is just bringing it all together for what a lot of people here consider a pest you know and and That's something true. that damages our buildings you know i've, I've worked in so many houses where we open up a wall and all of a sudden there's all this thermos there and there's all this cost to fix it but yet they when left alone in their own environment in a secluded area of australia they build these massive structures it's amazing yeah yeah, yeah. they just don't do demo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so right, cool so i'm I'm, cool. I'm i was i'm actually surprised we all agreed on the same thing yeah on the same thing yeah. Yeah. but i like it cool so we've we've crowned the king of the of the animal builders yes the termites <laughs> <laughs> yeah the termite <laughs> very icky. cool all cool right. related right, to good. the cockroach <laughs> <laughs> good all right well we are gonna i'm gonna well, we're going to move on to the next part of the show, but I think what I might do is I might take at some point this section of what we just talked about now and try and do a little YouTube video that shows photos of the different animals we've been talking about and the structures that we're talking about. Oh, yeah, that sounds so good. So I may put that up on YouTube here when I, when I get some time. So Cool. All right. Good. So, yeah, we're going to move on to the product of the week.
Um, this is a product that I found, gosh, a few weeks back, but we sort of been pushing it back. And I think this show makes sense to bring it up because it, it ties into some of the other stuff we've discussed. But it's uh, from Moleskin, and it's what they call the future of the sketchbook. And basically, they're going to sell you these sketchbooks and this pen that you draw on top of, you draw on, and as you're drawing on this sketchbook and this pen, it automatically translates to your device, whether it's a phone or a tablet or your computer. It, whatever you're drawing is also being drawn on that device. And, and it's, quite in, it's quite nice because there are a lot of screens out there right now that you can draw on directly, the new iPads and the touch screens. And they're all nice, but I feel like this keeps a certain connection to the sketchbook. I have tons of sketchbooks, you know, like I'm always carrying one with me. And I saw this, I, I've seen a lot of gimmicky sketchbooks, and I saw this one, I was like, it's pretty cool. What do you guys think, having seen it? Claudia, what do you think? Um, I, I'm not going to buy it. I, this <laughs> well, is something I wouldn't do. And <laughs> the reason why is because I, I think it's one of those, um, one of those, those things that, for a while, I was doing a lot of the sketching, yeah, on paper. Mm -hmm. And um, but then, you know, when I started graduate school, I made a conscious decision that I was not going to be buying any, um, any books, mm -hmm. and also any like even notebooks. I mean, I was trying to type up as much as I could on my iPad, on my iPad. So I went digital, mm -hmm. and that was hard. It took me like a good semester or two to get used to that. But the reasons why I did that is because I'm a thrifty consumer. I'm also an environmentalist consumer, and I'm also a techie consumer. Mm -hmm. Especially being a being a girl, that's kind of cool. I think you know mm -hmm. that you know I, I like to keep up with the trends in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but this particular Moleskin wants to do both. They want to like capture both consumers. You know those that mm -hmm. you know the analog people who don't want to get rid of their their paper. And also those that you know want to move to the digital. So I think it's pretty cool in that sense. But you know you kind of have to choose one or the other at, at some given point because otherwise you're giving them like mm. so much money. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. What so do you think, Ray? Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, that this is something that would come out because uh, when I was in school and and even when I was in practice, uh, sketches were were a little bit more valuable than they to me then than they are now. Um, I'm not sure if they would be so valuable to me that I have to digitize every sketch. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for me, uh, even even back then, uh, when I was in practice, I kept all my sketches um, for reference. They were just for reference only. But what I find is that, and I sketch every day uh, now, but my, my sketches are all um, disposable. They're all temporary. They're disposable. It is to solve a particular uh, problem you know with a with a uh, a drawing experiment and usually they have a very short lifespan and once the problem is solved we put it into uh, a, a formalized drawing and put it on the floor and start making it and then the product is gone move on to the next thing so for me now uh, sketches are quite um, disposable and this wants to do uh, you know in my opinion uh, the exact opposite it wants to immortalize every sketch in a digital format to be uh, distributed, which uh, I guess if you're working in a in a collaborative effort, that uh, and there's some distance between you, that is valuable in that respect. And mm -hmm. I think as a business tool to be able to communicate with different people, maybe it's more valuable. But uh, for the average person, uh, I'm not sure digitizing every sketch is necessary. 
uh, and um, uh, you know, part of me kind of uh, agrees with uh, with uh, with Claudia as far as uh, in you know environmentally speaking, do you need another thing uh, to add to all the things that you have when a pencil and paper is really all that you need to satisfy this particular uh, issue? Uh, I think they do have a market, and I think that that Claudia is correct. They're trying to capture two markets at once. Yeah, I mean, I can see what you both are saying. I think to me is, you know, I think, well, I, I, one, I think most kin notebooks are not for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. they're, I think they're targeted to specific people that are drawing a lot. They even have specific notebooks for specific uses. Mm -hmm. like they have notebooks that are just for people that draw cart to draw comic strips. They have notebooks that are for people that that write like. Songs. You mean they're like pre-formatted yeah, like kind of thing? Right. Yeah. They yeah. Have, they're 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 pre-formatted, right? Um, and they're quite expensive, to be honest with you. You can get a notebook for much cheaper than you can get a Moleskine notebook. Mm -hmm. Relatively speaking, I mean, like $12 for a tiny, tiny notebook is, is quite a bit. When you think about it, you can get one for like 5 bucks. that's much bigger and uh -huh. more uh -huh. pages. Um, so I think what they're doing, to me when I saw this, I was like, because if you, if you watch the thing, it's the pen has a camera. And so they're showing you both the pen and the notebook. Because in order for the pen to be able to transfer to a notebook, the notebook has has the, a, a grid on it, has this dotted grid, so it's tracking using that grid. Um, so yeah, they're trying to do both. They're trying to get you to still buy their notebooks, and they're giving you a, a way of digitizing it that's connected to your hand. Um, but I think they realize that it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I also think it's probably a half measure. Like right now, that's the way they have to do it. I think eventually you might be able to use just a pen, draw whatever piece of paper you want, and be able to translate it to your device immediately. You know, it's interesting though, uh, uh, talking about this and listening to your guys' perspective, is that it's uh, when you think about the regular pen and paper, you ha you have to have two things. You have to have your your ink, and you have to have the surface on which to put it on. When you're looking at this in a digitized format, you actually need three things now. You need the pen, mm -hmm. you need the moleskin notebook, and you need the device for it to, to go on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And um, if you are uh, drawing directly on the surface of your device, all you need is a stylus and your device. So this particular uh, measure calls for an extra, an extra thing to be part of the whole system. What is making me think of is in the future, what is this going to evolve to? Uh, what about just using your finger on any surface to create a digital um, sketch or, or any kind of sketch? So eliminate the pen, eliminate the paper, and you're just, and you only have one thing. You just have your device, and maybe it recognizes your motion and you are automatically sketching. It makes me want to not think about this, but it causes me to think about five, ten years from now, what is the future going to be like? I, yeah, I really like that because the other thing that this particular uh, product creates is stuff. Yes, more stuff. <laughs> more stuff, and that's what. So from a uh, from the paper and the notebooks, and you know, it's like it's another notebook that you need to find a place for once you're done with it, and you've, mm -hmm. you've filled it all up, right? What do you do with it? And you have to trash it, or you have to save it because it's you know dear to you. You know, for us mm -hmm. that we like drawing, it's dear to our draw. You know, those drawings are dear to us. Um, but then. If from an environmentalist perspective, that's the reason why I go, I, I became digital, you know, I try to go digital, but that's also stuff because all of those JPEGs, PDFs, all of those formats, they live somewhere. While they may go in the cloud, that cloud actually lives in a data center somewhere and it takes up a lot of energy somewhere else. 
Um, so they're not necessarily ebooks the same case, right? They're not necessarily that environmentally friendly mm -hmm. because they're being hosted somewhere as well. So whether you always have stuff, whether it's digital mm -hmm. stuff or something. So I like your idea, right? Because you're removing one of those things. Yeah. You wouldn't have the book anymore. So you would only have this digital part. And then that's why, like, for everything that I do, I archive. I So whenever I do anything with digital, then I start archiving it pretty well. Like, what do I not need and what do I need? What's really precious and what's not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess for me, is I already have the notebooks, I, and I'm, I don't, I don't see myself ever not having the notebooks. Uh -huh. uh, and maybe that's because you know, even look at the iPad. You think the iPad would have been the first thing that you would have a great stylus to be able to draw on mm -hmm. right away, mm -hmm. yeah. but they just came out with a, with what's supposed to be a good stylus for the iPad, and it's really expensive. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's hard to find right now because everybody tried to get one as soon as it came out. So. That's why I think this product appealed to me mm -hmm. to begin with. So when you sketch, I mean, uh, you know, to me, like I said, right now, sketches are disposable. Oh, but do you keep all of your sketches or most of your but, sketches? See, it's interesting you say that because now I, I'm, I recently moved to a new firm that I'm working at. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because since we work on, on, a, on a software, you, you, you're all familiar with it, it's called Revit. Yeah. Um, but we work on a software basically where we have to 3D model the building as we're designing, our first meeting with our clients is done completely on hand drawings, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So we do the existing drawings of their house if it's an existing drawing, but our first meeting with them showing them a new design is completely done in hand drawings. Once we've worked out some of the things we know they want in hand drawings, then we move to the new to, to, to doing it on the computer, yeah. which is something that I hadn't done at any other firm, you know? So oh, what were you doing before? Oh, we would autom we would have sketches between us, but we would never meet with the client with just hand sketches. Mm. We would do some hand sketches, but we would always go to the computer and then show that to the client. Mm. So the sketch has become more important to me. The having nice sketches that are presentable mm -hmm. to a client has become much more important in the last... I've been working there three months now. So it's gotten me to want to draw more. Mm. And I think that's why this product had, was speaking to me in that sense. Yeah. Mm. Well, I will tell you, um, it, it, it's easy for us to fall in love with the presentation of mm -hmm. a computer model because we understand how much work it is to make it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually easier to, to draw by hand than it is to model things on the computer, right. but the computer allows you to manipulate. Once it's done, it lets you manipulate it a whole lot faster. And, dis and if you're doing a 3D model, discover interferences and issues that might arise later. But what's interesting about a hand drawing, and I like and I don't know if your your uh, uh, employer is doing it intentionally as a marketing tool, but your your clients and and when I was in practice, my clients uh, and even my clients now, when, when I'm doing machines and stuff, and they see me sketch something 3D very quickly, uh, your your clients cannot draw. So a hand drawing in front of your client, especially if you do it in real time, it is. Uh, to them so impressive you know to us it's not a big deal but to them it's so impressive that many times that's what seals the deal with your client because they feel that you can do something they cannot do and that makes you more qualified for the job so yeah. as a marketing tool ha having that hand sketch is very valuable yeah what's really interesting Ray is when you were mentioning how right now what you how you draw is basically like quick drawings and then you you move move away from them you know you'd like 
then you you use them and you put them in a computer and then you get really accurate with them, right? That's the other benefit yes. of when you go into 3D modeling or any other modeling, the, the accuracy of it. Yes. But um, it's really interesting because when I was, again, when I was in graduate school, I a lot of the papers that I was writing, um, I needed to outline my 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 thoughts. So as I, the only way that I could do it is grab the trace paper, trash paper is what we call it, and I would start mind mm-hmm. mapping my my thoughts mm-hmm. in there, and like I would just outline my entire papers, you know, thirty page, page papers, just completely outlined there, and I got into the habit of doing that constantly, mm-hmm. and so whenever I would work with other um, students and other, you know, just in, in, in classroom settings, that's what I did, you know. So the minute that I see a whiteboard, I go straight to the whiteboard and I mm-hmm. start you know, mind, mind mapping mm-hmm. stuff. So it's not just, you know, diagramming, you know, See, like doing all those things. Yeah. So yeah, you use it, you, you yeah. can't go away from it. And, and I think that this is an interesting discussion that maybe we have for our main topic. One of the next shows is, cause I just also read something else about whether books are going away or not, but uh, maybe we should have that discussion as to whether hand drawing or re or having handheld books is going to go away. Maybe we should save yeah. that for the next discussion. Yeah. Because I think this has brought up some yeah. good stuff. Yeah. 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 Cool. But All what's right. interesting, though, is that we have just discovered this demographic. So out of the three of us, uh, one of us would find this useful and the other two would not. And yeah. mm-hmm. that might be their market share. You know, it's one out of every three mm-hmm. people. That's right. true. Yeah. yeah. So and I and think and our discussion bit. kind of opened that up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I bet their market share probably is already close to that when it comes to their their just their plain notebooks. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to know just how much sales they do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, All good. cool. So let's uh, move on to what are we working on? I'm going to tap out of this right away because I've not had time to work on anything <laughs> else. Um, yeah. I've been quite busy. But I know, I know Claudia, you know, let, let, let's get you to talk first, Claudia, because last week we mentioned some of the stuff you had been doing. We sort of very briefly mentioned it. And I think I put, I'm pretty sure I put in the notes um, the article with the video of you going to the DC Council. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit even about the 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 other stuff you've been worked on just very quickly. Okay, so really quickly, um, I'm leading an, a group in the Sierra Club that is focused on environmental justice issues. And here in DC, there's been some water um, uh, water issues, just like you know, with the whole onset of Flint, Michigan, people are, most communities are looking at their water a lot more. They're, being, they're scrutinizing their water systems. Um, and in DC, they noticed that the water 12 schools out of the entire um, public system have higher levels of lead in their water, and there's really no plan. There was really no plan of action from the city or from the CPS at all to to handle that, and there was no information given out to the communities or anything. And then one of the schools had um, brown water sedimentation, and that was not necessarily from the lead, but it came from another issue of plumbing. Um, and yeah, like, all of the council members basically didn't do much about it. So we had the idea of this group of going, you know, wake up early one morning or Friday morning and going to the, um, what we call, I guess it would be town hall mm-hmm. and delivering this simulated brown water to every single one of the council <laughs> members. And it was interesting because people were like, no, we don't want to touch that. What is that? And we actually like, you know, chased down a couple of the council members and tried mm-hmm. to get them to commit. And they did. They committed to... 
um, having a, an open forum, a public hearing about it. Um, obviously, DC Water is going to be doing this more, uh, it's going to actually have a plan of action. Um, mm -hmm. And the, yeah, the Department of Environment is also going to do that. But then, you know, like the, the um, local news came by mm -hmm. and they surprised us and they followed us as we were doing this. It was pretty cool. It was like our my first direct action. <laughs> yeah, and you appear on the on the video at the very end uh, of the video too, saying a couple of things. So it's cool. I'll put I'll put it on the yeah. show notes again for people that missed it maybe last week. Yeah, and then um, so this this coming week I'm going to be uh, focusing on solar issues and jobs mm -hmm. specifically because solar is great. I mean it's just, it's getting um, it's improving so much, but we also need to start seeing more jobs being created. From it, so yeah. Cool. Very cool. All right, Ray. What, what about you? You working on anything this week? Um, yeah, but first I'd like to say, uh, Claudia, I saw that video and uh, I thought it was great. And honestly, I don't know how you were able to stay so calm when that uh, councilwoman just kind of ignored you guys. I, I w personally, I don't think I could have stayed so calm. <laughs> I wanted to chase her down. Trust me. Oh yeah. <laughs> or throw a bottle at her and say, "Hey, here's what we're talking about. Where are you running away from?" Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so all good stuff there. Um, yeah, so uh, what I've been working on recently, I just finished a, uh, uh, and you probably like this, I'm going to put a video of it in my uh, YouTube channel, uh, The uh, a chopper that I made, that uh, we made for one of our clients that chops plastic. I know we've been talking mm. about uh, the precious plastics and yep. recycling plastic. Well, one of my, uh, one of my uh, clients is a, a plastic manufacturer, and they manufacture um, all kinds of different plastic materials, stuff you've never even heard of uh, for specialized industrial applications. And uh, that's the one I want to take you to so you can see uh, what the large scale equipment that the precious plastics uh, gentleman was mm -hmm. uh, miniaturizing. So you can appreciate the scale, but uh, what we made was an in-feed roll unit. So what it does is it takes the material off of a roll and it forces it into a, a guillotine chopper and it chops mm -hmm. it up into small wow. pieces that they can then use uh, to put into a grinder and grind it into small enough parts that they can feed into their manufacturing system. So I'm going to be putting up a, a video then the next few days. Yeah, that's really cool. Very cool. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, we, we did it again. <laughs> that's five shows in. <laughs> we've, yeah, we, five shows we've, in. We finished another one. Um, thank you both guys for being on here. And uh, why don't we tell real quick uh, where people can find out more about what you're doing, Claudia? Um, at City Ecologist uh, That's on, on Twitter. The, on the Twitter. Mm -hmm. On the Twitter or at thecityecologist.com. Cool. Ray, you uh, you still haven't gotten the Twitter account. <laughs> I still haven't done that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I guess I'm a low in that in that respect. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, but you, we, we always put links to your uh, to your Facebook group and to your uh, to your YouTube channel as well. Good. So, so, yeah, cool. it's growing. Yeah. Oh yeah, as, as a matter of fact, I hit a thousand uh, subscribers probably, I think on Saturday or Sunday, I hit a thousand subscribers. That's crazy. Very cool. Nice. So That's, uh, nice. Yeah, it's a thousand subscribers in 99 days. So I don't know what I'm doing that people <laughs> like, but apparently they like it. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, you're the, the woodworking YouTube celebrity now. I guess. <laughs> All right, um, right. And uh, you can find me at on Twitter at City Aperture and uh, if you want to email the show we have the email account is madepodcast at gmail.com but uh, you know 
maybe write a review on iTunes if you listen through iTunes. There's several places you can listen to. You can also listen on SoundCloud. If I mean, and if you're listening, you found the way you listen. So. Yeah, and tell your friends to subscribe. Exactly. Tell friends to subscribe. Tell somebody that might like the show if you like what you're hearing. All right. That's it for the show. Thanks. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.